Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is Tuesday, October the 10th, 2023. You've done a number of shows uh, over the last year or two on the use of drugs and how they affect us and legal, other issues associated with that. Uh, one with Carl Hart, a very popular and controversial writer based in New York, drug use for grown-ups, chasing liberty in the land of the fear. Another with a, a Bay Area writer, William Brewer, who's written a book, uh, a novel called The Red Arrow, which is quite autobiographical, um, about how psychedelic therapy saved his life or how he sees psychedelic therapy as saving his life. Many of these books are, in some senses, autobiographical. We're doing another one today, another one on uh, what is known as the, or at least this book is called The New Reality of Psychedelics with my guest, Andy Mitchell, who has a new book out, 10 Trips, um, about 10 trips, literally and otherwise, he took uh, in association with psychedelics. He's joining us from just outside Yorkshire, uh, not just outside Yorkshire, just outside Leeds in Yorkshire. Uh, Andy, congratulations on the new book. Um, it's already out in the UK and it's out this week in the US. 10 Trips, The New Reality of Psychedelics. Tell me a little bit about your own history and its association with psychedelics. Yeah, I will. I guess there's two parts to the history. Like, uh, I work clinically uh, in across neurology and neurosurgery, and I'd uh, taken a sabbatical, um, and I was looking at um, ways mindfulness practices might be instantiated in clinical care. And I came across. I was in California, and I came across a lady who was an ayahuasca, and she started persuading me of the virtues of psychedelics and i'd heard a little bit about it i'd read michael pollan's how to change your mind and i find my mind hadn't been changed quite nonetheless i i engaged in what was an ayahuasca ceremony with this lady and it was the first time i'd taken dr any drugs in 25 years and it rather it rather blew my mind and changed the way I was changed the way I thought about the structure of my own consciousness and my personality, my emotions. And uh, about the same time, my publishers asked me if I would take on psychedelics um, as as a new subject for a book. And so I thought I'd like to really make a survey as broad as possible by taking uh, ten major ten of the major different psychedelic compounds and cross-hatching them across, uh, across various contexts, beginning at a fMRI lab in Imperial College London and ending up at the Amazon, and trying to cross off as many different models of psychedelics in between those two extremes. A lot of people are intrigued with the notion of drug use, one kind or other. As I said, we've, we've done shows on it before. Yours focus on psychedelic drugs. What, what exactly does that mean? Well, psychedelics comes from the Greek, uh, literally meaning mind manifesting. And it was a term that was coined by Humphrey Osman in 1957 in a, a dialogue with the British author Aldous Huxley. 
and it uh, it was an attempt to capture the way that the these drugs appeared to have uh, 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 properties that altered perception and cognition and emotion and sensation and rendered reality in a in a new way. And it's at a very sort of even though we tend to think of psychedelics and recently there's been a lot of literature emerging about how psychedelics have been used for thousands of years. Of course, they weren't known as psychedelics at the time they were being used. They were definitely mind altering. But psychedelics has a particular cachet that really got harnessed in the 50s and 60s in scientific research and then in, in the counterculture by the likes of Timothy Leary. Then it went into a kind of illegal obsolescence in terms of conventional usage until the so-called psycho psychedelic renaissance that began in, in piecemeal form in the latter part of the uh, 1990s and then has grown momentum. And I, for me, at least the starting point of my book, that momentum reached its, uh, its sort of portal with the publication of Pollen's How to Change Your Mind. And since that time, we've seen this elaboration, this giant explosion which has been both corporate and neuroscientific and clinical, and now in terms of tourism and retreat centers. And I wanted to write a book that captured something of this, of the culture around psychedelics and what we're doing with these new objects, effectively. You mentioned the the, the pollen book, um, How to Change Your Mind, came out in, in, in 2018. But people have written about this stuff many years before 2018. You also mentioned Aldous Huxley, who was particularly interested in this, he, of course, is the author of Brave New World, in which he imagines a society where people live with psychedelics. In your reading, um, Andy, of Brave New World, is Soma a psychedelic? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, I think that uh, this was Soma, Brave New World preceded Huxley's own experimentation with mescaline, but Huxley was obviously sort of keenly aware in in his uh, perennial philosophy of the influence of mind-altering experiences on the way we see the world and this classical lineage that goes back to the Greeks. So, you know, he was there at the inception of the term psychedelic. So I think, I think he, yeah, I, I think in, it's interesting the way that for when, when Huxley went on to discover psychedelics, he retrofitted Mm. psychedelics and mescaline to his perennial philosophy and that's kind of what happens across the board with psychedelics is that whether they're scientists or shamans or new age retreat centers everyone has a particular model of what psychedelics are and how they affect them and psychedelics tend to allow people to fit themselves to that model except there's always an excess there's always something tricksterish about the psychedelics that won't be fitted into the model of clinical neuroscience or clinical therapy for mental health or or cognitive enhancement in Silicon Valley. Whatever model people have, the psych psychedelics give something of the shape of that model, but then also slips through the net. You mentioned that you trained as a clinical neuroscientist. Do psychedelics play with the brain? Is that the, the connection with neuroscience? Well, the difference, I mean, the one thing that marks this particular psychedelic renaissance is that we, as opposed to the 1960s, we now have uh, fairly reliable neuroimaging and neurotransmitter tracking devices by which we can look at the activity in the brain. Of course, I believe that psychedelics affect the brain. And there's been quite a lot of, quite a lot made, really 
from the point of Pollen's book onwards, of the different possible mechanisms by which psychedelics affect the brain and which structures are implicated or which networks. And I think a lot of this has been reported. And I, as a neuroscientist, I'm very used to, um, you know, scientific papers that link a particular skill or activity or behavior with a particular network in the brain. I'm less convinced, having read a lot of this stuff, of how significant those kinds of papers are in terms of drilling down on the nature of that experience and whether 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 knowing that psychedelics affect, uh, affect the default mode network or the salience network the so-called these so-called scientific network uh, neurological networks how much that actually helps us develop a sense of the richness and the slipperiness of these uh, uh, of these experiences the phenomenology of these experiences there are of course many people who are concerned about this they're not particularly permissive when it comes to psychedelics. Uh, we've done some shows on neuroscience and, and most neuroscientists acknowledge that we know very little about the brain. It's the most complex, some people even suggest it's the most complex thing in the universe. Should we be careful, Andy? I mean, given that we don't understand the brain very well. And it's we, should certainly be <laughs> we should certainly be careful about the claims that we make for psychedelics as treatments for mental health or the claims that we might have for proposing mechanisms for the uh for how they work in the brain we should also i think even though i wasn't particularly careful in my book having uh, taking really taking i curated my psychedelic experiences across 60 days and i did something like 40 ceremonies in 60 days admittedly with a a trip sitter and an integration therapist but i think i came across an experience for myself enough to suggest that there's something well, however safe the container, there are risks involved in taking psychedelics to um, uh, you, part of their effect may indeed be to temporarily threaten our sanity, for want of a better word. And it's it's through that threat that perhaps some of the significant gains might be made in understanding. But that's a lot of risk to take on. And as yet, we're in the very early stages of tracking the, tracking the effects and the natures of these risks and what therapies are useful and how to contain these therapies. So I think there's, there's certainly an element of risk, yes. We're speaking with Andy Mitchell, the author of a fascinating new book, 10 Trips, The New Reality of Psychedelics. Uh, Andy, are psychedelics now increasingly legal? I mean, you're skirting, and it seems a lot of this stuff skirts the, the, uh, the, the area between the illegal and, and legal. Uh, can you buy this stuff on the streets now? I, I, I have to admit, I'm not. Well, you uh, certainly uh, can't. You certainly can't buy it on the streets of Yorkshire. But I believe they were very nearly decriminalised across the state of California a week ago, and that was uh, overturned at the last minute by the governor. I mean, I think the cultural drift in certainly in the states and in other parts of North America, and with the, the UK lagging behind is that there is going to be a movement towards legally apprehending these things without having to be scripted by a doctor. I think that the, the time, the time at which, um, for example, MDMA will be used for PTSD or psilocybin for intractable depression may be very, very close. And certainly in Oregon, I believe now, I think it's possible to go and buy psilocybin uh, it's been a couple of years since i was there so i don't know that for sure certainly in in places in south america it's uh, very easy to access all kinds of uh, local indigenous plants that have psychedelic qualities 
are the arguments about legalization are they pretty much the same arguments for and against as for marijuana for example um i think that uh there's possibly a different emphasis given that the link in the public the link in the public's mind with psychedelics this time round has been very much as the, uh, they exist as revolutionary treatments for mental health that it's been 40 50 years mm. since the last real innovation in psychopharmacology within psychiatry in the form of ssris and associated drugs and now here come psychedelics with a, a, an early but increasing evidence base that they may have temporary medium-term significant treatments for the for, for various different axis one and axis two clinical disorders so i think that pushes whereas marijuana at least in the uk has has had in the last 20 years in particular quite a strong association with the triggering of certain mental health problems particularly uh psychosis that's been a kind of the the, the authenticity of that narrative is unsure but it's certainly in the British press, that's been quite a strong link. So I think the way that psychedelics have been uh, represented in the US press and the way that they've been corporatized by venture capitalists, investing in patentings and protocols for psychedelics mm. has had a different emphasis than marijuana. And uh, yeah, you write a lot and think a, and think a lot about the way in which it's become very fashionable in, in tech circles in Silicon Valley. I go to a lot of tech conferences and I've got friends who are startup entrepreneurs of one kind or another in this space. It's interesting, though, that we live, Andy, in what many people now call this age of anxiety. We've done many shows on an epidemic of mental ill health. Is it any coincidence that we have the rise of psychedelics uh, at a time where people seem increasingly anxious? Or are these... Well, I'm disconnected things i mean i'm glad you raised this because i i this was really what initially drew me into this field because i was just very skeptical uh about the timing of it and i think i, I mean i've worked for a number of years in severe and enduring mental health conditions and the idea that we could suddenly as the world as you suggest becomes increasingly complex with all manner of existential threats pressing down on pressing down on us in different ways that the idea that some plants that of thousands of years ago could somehow change the conditions of people that were having severe and enduring mental health conditions just didn't hold water to me for me i mean the, what, what however profound the experience might be for the time one's having it if one is returning to the same material circumstances if one carries the same genetic predispositions either side of that experience i just didn't have the belief that an experience could transmogrify those conditions i i do think however and and also I, I, another element to this is i think that there's something about psychedelics that has been able to trade on its indigenous plant-based roots that allows them in the, to take hold mm. in the cultural imagination at a time where Climate change is so ubiquitous in the way that we understand ourselves and our plights. The idea that the plants, that the universe itself could offer up some kind of solution for our generalized anxiety, just seemed a little bit too neat of a Hollywood script. Uh, that said, on the other side of my experiences, I, 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 have, I have to admit that psychedelics do seem to create 
a way of unsticking ourselves, at least temporarily, from preoccupations. I think that unsticking, that molten phase where things can be redetermined in different ways is, a, is an important crack in a window. But unless, unless that is then consolidated and ramified by implementing new behaviours, both individually and across cultures and communities, then I, I don't see how it can be an antidote for the age of anxiety. Yeah, and I, I take your point. I, we haven't had one of these books, but I'm sure it's being written or probably has been written or certainly commissioned. Some historian of indigenous peoples arguing that these cultures were defined by the way in which psychedelics impacted on these civilizations. Have you seen anything on that, Andy? I mean, there are things out there like that, the, 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 but they've not received the same press. I think I think that you know, we in the it's I mean, to what extent are shamanic practices and indigenous practices relevant to the current psychedelic renaissance? And certainly, there's a material relevance in that we've arguably expropriated and stolen some of these things in various ways. But in terms of, I think that the, the indigenous tribes don't think of these medicines as psychedelic. They think of the world in a particular way, and mm. the and plants are part of that world. And the plants are no more psychedelic than the rest of their understanding of the world. They may enhance, they may enhance a particular appreciation of aspects of the world at that given moment. But the world and the way of seeing the world, the philosophy that underpins the world, is so radically different from our own. We're used to inserting objects in our systems and having ourselves change temporarily. But then we return to our conventional views rather than our whole culture being psychedelically inscribed as it might be uh, might be seen as such in, in southern america for example do you think then that in a way that this renewed interest in unsticking ourselves mentally shamanic practices that it's all part of the same challenge to reason and science i mean i think that I, okay i think that psychedelics are an interesting test case for science and reason because they because rather like quantum mechanics they seem to uh make the relationship between an independent observer and uh and an experience uh an unstable relationship so that we know that for example set and setting have a huge effect on the experience of psychedelics so whatever the scientist does however much they attempt to deracinate set and setting, there is some imprint on the actual way that the experiment is set up on the experience itself. So mm. it's hard to then say that the psychedelic is behaving in this way without taking into some self-reflexive account of the way that the, the, the clinician, for example, has imprinted himself on that or, or herself on that particular experience. So I think there is something, there is a, so however many, neuroscience papers we get on this particular mechanism and that particular mechanism if we don't start considering the self-reflexivity of the experience and the phenomenology of the experience then i think we're we're never really going to capture something about the psychedelic experience yeah we can't i can't imagine old john locke or david hume on psychedelics but that maybe is another book andy we are talking with andy mitchell who's written a fascinating new book 10 Trips, The New Reality of Psychedelics. I want to take a, a short break now. Thank our sponsor, Liberties, a quarterly journal of culture and politics. And when we come back, I want to talk more specifically about Andy's new book. We're going to 
have a, a short, brief interlude featuring liberties. But don't leave us anyone anywhere, anyone. We will be back in about 30 seconds. Beyond the news, the noise, there is nuance, insight. Liberties is not just a journal of ideas. It's a meteor of intelligent substance. It's the place to be for engaged citizens. Politics, opinion, substance. Liberties is a triumph for freedom of thought. A quarterly of urgency, of cultural exploration, of intellectual delight, of immaculate prose. It's invaluable. Subscribe now or find Liberties at your favorite bookseller. And you can subscribe to Liberties at libertiesjournal.com. We are talking with Andy uh, Andy uh, Mitchell, the author of a really intriguing new book, Ten Trips, The New Reality of Psychedelics. Andy, tell me a little bit more about the book. It, it, it literally is made up of, of 10 trips you make uh, to investigate shamanic practices and all the, the other cultural businesses and associations with, I'm, I'm quoting you here from the first part of our conversation, unsticking ourselves. Yeah. So, I mean, the structure was very easy in the sense that the publisher set me a challenge. Take 10 different molecules or compounds in 10 different settings and write something about the model of each of those compounds and settings and then write and blend that in with your your trip or the experience of people that you met that were on were tripping. And I, you know, I think I'm talking very seriously about psychedelics, but there was something incredibly playful and funny and hilarious about the way that reality started unfolding as I got on this kind of odyssey, this psychedelic odyssey. And for example, I um, I was in uh, the, no the, the, the northern part of uh, the Sierra Nevada with the Kogi tribe at one point, who do use psychoactive plants for the uh, for various aspects of their cultural um, processing, particularly divination. And at that time, uh, I was having my fortune told by a Kogi priest. And um, a, a, another gentleman was with me along along for the ride. And I'd never met this guy before. And as he was receiving his divination from the Kogi priest, which is a kind of incredibly sophisticated procedure involving reading the natural world in close detail and then mapping that against the movements of his body and the feeling of the soil and the the way that the ants are, ants are configuring in the earth over there or the wind is taking the palms as he was doing this with the with the other chap who was a, a man from lithuania the sky just very suddenly turned black and a dark crow landed a, a crow landed on a dead tree and made three terrible crows it, and it was as though it was sort of, sort of pan, pantomime choreography as this guy was receiving um, his lesson of the future. And uh, that night I got talking to this chap and it, it, it turned out that he had run the Lithuanian mafia for 15 years and had exported drugs and women and cigarettes across the whole of the Baltic and Eastern Europe and into Europe and had, and, and had come to Peru after a kind of nervous breakdown and a sort of guilt-ridden uh, a guilt-ridden moment taken ayahuasca and he was being told by the ayahuasca and now by this kogi priest that he had to go back and make reparations for all the crimes he'd committed and set up a recycling factory and interestingly i just saw this man today a year on and he's done exactly that he 
bought his way out of the mafia and he's now set up a recycling business in the north of Yorkshire. Is that an encouraging or an abs or a discouraging story? It sounds almost absurd. I think I think it's I think I mean, it does are you sound suggesting that, that taking this stuff or might it be interpreted that taking this stuff makes us better people? I'm always very wary of that sort of thing. It certainly is absurd and I th I don't think he would even say that I don't even think that he would say that it's made him a better person, but I think it stopped him from doing old behaviors. It it just, it made certain parts of his life intolerable to him. I don't think he, I mean, it's a really interesting question because if you read some of the science, certainly if you go on a lot of the new age retreats, you get a kind of magic voluntarism whereby you can leave your old self behind and reinvent yourself via these, by a, by a, by yeah. a, by a, by a ceremony. I don't think he would say that, but and he, I think he uses, for example, in his new business, even though it's recycling, he uses many of his previous contacts uh, 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 to, 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 to mobilize and finance the business. But I think his disposition has changed and he certainly doesn't, in, uh, he certainly engages in less severe organized crime than he used to. What about the role of violence in this? This criminal must have been violent at some point, clearly able yeah. to... Uh, uh, operate in a violent world. We live in a violent world. Does this, do psychedelics make us more or less violent, more or less in control of our body? Yeah, I, I think that I, again, I don't. I think that any attempt. I think so much of the science, particularly the early science, tried to model psychedelics as making us more this or less that, more eco-conscious, less mm. less right-wing more appreciative of music less into bullfighting whatever the whatever the variable bit would be and i think you you're just depending on the way it's set up depending on the experience at that particular moment it can be used in one way or another i mean it's no it's no accident psychedelics are called hyper suggestibility enhancers that it can make people more or less of pretty much anything given how it's modeled and set up at that time and it's why it's been used by the US Army to make to see what to see to see if fighters could become more efficient or more aggressive in particular ways. Similarly, it's been made it's been used by hippies outside of that context to try and make people into more loving and you know peaceful eco-conscious eco types. I think any simple narrative of transformation is necessarily naive. But has that also introduced the idea? that we're not simple you you wrote um in uh, in an interesting piece uh, i have new urges and desires to wear caftans to do my own plumbing to work in hospice care those three things don't naturally go together in the conventional no i was i was being playful but i i was trying at that but point. my point is that it 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 broadens the potential the boundaries of the self is what you're saying right I, I am saying that. I think I'm just trying to introduce some new ones. I don't think that um, psychedelics have made me a different person or necessarily a better person, but there are certain that it's made certain things. It has brought, as you just said, it's broadened my perspective on things. It's allowed me to entertain newness in small but important ways. It's developed my resilience for those times in one's life when I when when I felt cornered, for example, uh, and and I think that I think it's quite an interesting and it's not a really a way it's not something that's been researched formally, but it's certainly there in 
the kind of psychonautical literature, that psychedelics do help us develop certain uh, skills for tolerance and resilience because you're being submitted to these high intensity, Leary called them critical moments where you have to find a way to come through or die or learn the rules of something that's unbelievably strange. And in so doing, we're given a, we're given a taste of what's possible in a way that we might not normally come up against it. It's the new travel. It's the 21st century travel. I guess, in a sense, it's the equivalent yeah. of the, the colonial or other kinds yeah. of travel of, of earlier periods. Um, well, that's you... right. And I think I, I do think that's an important reference to make because the danger of it, again, is to make us even more, rather than enhancing our awareness and connecting us with the world, it's just another way of making us sedentary pleasure seekers that will change the way we feel with with by dropping a pill and it's actually rather than promoting real travel it's addicting us to the experience of psychic travel for example and which you know is a actually paradoxically clear way of disconnecting us from reality yeah and of course again this is not coincidentally becoming fashionable in our age of the metaverse um and it was right. something that Huxley warned very much about in Brave New World. How broadly, Andy, can we fit this into the age of biotech, an age where people are traveling away from the genders that they were born with? Is this part of this broader uh, way in which we are rethinking our bodies, ourselves? I do, yeah. I, I think it's interesting because it's, on the one hand, uh, people are wanting to invoke indigenous ancient practices that are yeah. somehow ecologically sound. And and on the other hand, we get this futural biohacking, cognitive enhancing narrative whereby we're, uh, we're, we're finding ways that go beyond conventional medicine to elaborate ourselves and extend our consciousness and, and, and bring, uh, you know, and bring new possibilities to mind. And I think there's something even though we think this is new, this is kind of, as you know, as you say, with Huxley and Soma, that even before psychedelics, this was something that people were fantasizing about in the 1930s and 40s. It's not, this isn't new at all. It's being, it's given a new flavor, particularly with, as you say, with the, you know, with the, uh, with the, with the evolution of AI and, uh, and social media and, uh, and, and virtual realities. Interestingly, there's been, really interesting research recently uh, with virtual virtual reality machines where they, where they where they're able now to connect a room of 12 people and give them psychedelic experiences that are clinically more powerful than the drugs themselves and people are changing on the mental health variables or the psychiatric variables that are used in psychedelic studies more at least as significantly just by virtual reality impressions of trips what about the politics of all this, Andy? Uh, you mentioned Silicon Valley. The kinds of people out here, I think, who are attracted tend to be libertarian. I'm not sure if Peter Thiel's into it, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was. Is there a, a strong, shall we say, right-wing libertarian quality to the psychedelic revolution? I'm not. I'm not close to close to it enough. The corporate side of it enough to pronounce on that. Because, and I would imagine. For every right-wing libertarian, there's also some very um, 
earnest, indigenously minded venture capital that wants to somehow uh, protect the authenticity and the history of the of the drugs in in taking them to market in that way. I do think, though, that collectively they're in danger of, you know, imprinting their own image and turning this psychedelic space into a kind of giant Disneyfied theme park, which, you know, which is always going to imperil the possible advantages of the drugs. Uh, yeah, you, uh, you, you wrote these days that field, the field that you're you're writing about looks like a cross between a Disneyfied theme park and the death throes of an international rave. Uh, yeah, it's it's interesting. So let's end. It's a, it's an interesting um, theme. I'm sure, uh, Andy, you will pursue this more. There's so much to it. You you made these ten trips in your search for the new reality of psychedelics. You mentioned uh, your experience with the Lithuanian drug dealer or criminal mafia leader. Uh, what was the most memorable trip? What's the one you remember best? And I guess the whole issue of remembering this stuff is also another complicated. Yeah. One. Yeah. Well, it's very different. Yeah, it's a very interesting area neuroscientifically. The idea of memory and language on psychedelics. But for me, I think, I think it would have to be an experience with uh, Wachuma, which is a mescaline-based cactus that's taken, um, taken ceremonially across South America. But I was in the Andes and I was on a, a it, 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 the effects of this psychedelic tea last for 14 hours. And I was wandering with uh, a shamanic leader through over the Andes uh, from dawn till dusk. And every hour we would stop and meditate and he would play music. And I found myself, uh, unlike some of the other trips where it was about how the world had been transmogrified in utterly strange and bizarre ways, this psychedelic trip was just how the world was existing in all its thisness, in all its presence, the strangeness and preciousness of its presence. And I just could not stop crying, uh, having failed to notice this adequately for the rest of my life up until this point. I think that's the one that stays with me most.